Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Ria Moherker. I'm currently a radiation oncology resident in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I will be your host today. I want to start out by saying thank you to all of you who have been listening to Spoonful of Sugar, following along with us, and engaging with us on social media. I originally started this podcast series to try and help medical students as much as possible, and I truly find that the easiest way to make that happen is when you guys tell me what you need. While I can't always meet all requests, um, I think that I do try to release episodes that are pertinent to what you guys want as much as possible. That said, uh, one of the requests that I've received quite often um, as of late is to start releasing some episodes that are more geared towards step two material. And so that is why I've designed the Clinical Concepts series. The Clinical Concepts material, I still want it to be relevant to those who are in didactics, but I also want to kind of take it a step forward and try and help out students who are preparing for step two a little bit more and try and help out students as they're going through their clinical rotations. So with the clinical concepts episodes, I'm still going to cover important board-related topics, but we're going to try and work more towards understanding the diagnostic and treatment strategies uh, and also try to focus on ways to help students who are going through their clinical rotations. Now, of course, everything in medicine still builds on itself, so whenever possible, I'm going to try and throw in some basic concepts of anatomy and physiology as much as possible to kind of build a comprehensive picture. Um, But I really do want to, you know, kind of take things up a level and work towards step two level material and work towards material that will help students as they're going through clinical rotations. The other thing I want to do with the clinical concept series is to try and encourage more interns and residents to start recording episodes uh, because I think that they'll have valuable clinical pearls to add to these topics. Uh, And I think it'll help kind of cast a wider net in terms of hosts for, for our episodes. Now, as we move towards concepts and covering material as it is relevant to actual clinical practice, I do think it is important to provide an overarching disclaimer that applies not only to this episode, but also all clinical concepts episodes, as well as, you know, the other episodes that we release in Spoonful of Sugar. The disclaimer is, I am not trying to give clinical advice for managing specific patients. None of what is said in these episodes should be used to diagnose or to treat patients. This is purely an educational podcast for medical students, and the content of these episodes does not substitute the medical advice from a qualified, board-certified practicing physician. Again, I think this goes without saying. uh, This podcast is made for people who are in training, medical students and residents, um, and so it obviously does not substitute the advice from an actual board-certified physician. Uh, I just think that in this medical legal era that we live in, it's really important to make this disclaimer. That said, I would like to move on now to cover our first clinical concepts topic, atrial fibrillation. So atrial fibrillation is one of the most common arrhythmias that you will see no matter what specialty you go into. So how does atrial fibrillation present? 
So it can certainly be asymptomatic. Patients might not even know that they're at an abnormal heart rhythm. But if it is symptomatic, what might patients complain of? They might have some palpitations or feeling like their heart is racing. They might feel a little bit lightheaded or dizzy. Um, And sometimes atrial fibrillation can lead to heart failure. So they may present with symptoms of heart failure, such as shortness of breath, the dyspnea exertion, orthopnea, etc. What would you see on exam? So if you were to auscultate, you would hear irregularly irregular heart sounds, um, and their pulse would feel irregularly irregular. Um, Now, what if a patient came in and they had left-sided paralysis and facial droop, and they were found to have an irregularly irregular pulse? What do you think is happening? So this patient is coming in with a stroke, um, but they also seem to be an AFib. So they probably have a stroke secondary to a thrombus that formed in the heart from their atrial fibrillation. And we'll cover that in more detail a little later on. So now who gets AFib? What are the causes of AFib? Any idea what the most common cause of atrial fibrillation is? Probably hypertension. And then the other thing I want you to remember is that AFib is strongly associated with cardiomyopathy. So AFib can cause heart failure, but heart failure can also cause AFib. So sometimes it's a chicken and egg situation and you don't know which one came first. So along with cardiomyopathy, think of the things that commonly cause cardiomyopathy. Alcohol, MIs, these are also causes of atrial fibrillation. Other causes include any kind of structural abnormality in the heart, mitral or aortic stenosis, mitral or aortic regurgitation, anything that contributes to left atrial enlargement. AFib can happen anytime there's inflammation of the heart, such as pericarditis, trauma, postoperatively. There are certain electrolyte abnormalities that are associated with AFib. Do you guys know what those are? So hypokalemia and hypomagnesemia are some of the electrolyte abnormalities we might see. Can you think of any endocrine abnormalities? Hyperthyroidism. If you have a patient who has new onset AFib, always check their TSH because they could have hyperthyroidism that's been undiagnosed. Um, And then pheochromocytoma is another kind of endocrine thing I think of that can cause AFib. And then systemic illnesses such as sepsis, patients who are in sepsis can sometimes unprovoked go into atrial fibrillation just because their body is under so much stress. Um, Patients who have diabetes, patients who have malignancy. And then a lot of elder people will sometimes get sick sinus syndrome. So sick sinus syndrome can sometimes lead to AFib as well. My next question for you is what is the pathophysiology of AFib? Like what is actually happening in the heart? So in AFib, what we see is that multiple foci in the atria are kind of firing in a chaotic pattern. Can you tell me where does the electrical impulse usually originate in a normal heartbeat? So the sinoatrial node, remember the sinoatrial node or the SA node is kind of the pacemaker of the heart. And now this is a question that I got from UWorld, which I actually missed several times. What is the most common source of the abnormal electrical impulse that we see in AFib? It's from the pulmonary veins. So the way that I explain to patients what is actually happening in AFib, the 
electrical sim- signals are abnormal, and so the muscles of the atria are not pumping in unison like they should. And so instead of pushing blood out into the ventricles, the atria are just kind of quivering and not moving blood effectively. So what is the major long-term concern if the atria are just quivering and the blood is not actually moving within the heart? What happens anytime that there is stasis of the blood? Clot formation, and that's what we're worried about in AFib in the long term, right? So where does the clot most commonly form in atrial fibrillation? That would be in the left atrial appendage. And now, clot formation is certainly a concern, but what's our major acute concern for a patient who is in AFib? We're worried about hemodynamic compromise, okay? Remember, anytime the heart is not beating properly from an arrhythmia, it could be atrial fibrillation or it could be any other arrhythmia, this could lead to low blood pressure and an unstable patient. So yeah, clots can form in the long term and that can lead to really devastating outcomes such as a stroke, but in the short term, if their blood pressure just acutely drops, then that could kill a patient very, very fast. And so our major acute concern in atrial fibrillation and any arrhythmia is hemodynamic compromise. Now, just a little fun fact here. Do you guys know the rate that the atria are typically beating at when the heart is in AFib? So the atrial rate is quite high. It's about 400 beats per minute. But most of these impulses are going to get blocked at the AV node. So the actual ventricular rate ends up being 75 to 175 beats per minute. Moving on then, how do we diagnose atrial fibrillation? So the key piece of information that you need is the EKG, or the electrocardiogram. You're going to get an EKG, and it will show an irregularly irregular rhythm. So the QRS complexes, instead of being evenly spaced out as they are in a normal heartbeat, or even in a heartbeat such as SVT, In AFib, you'll see irregularly irregular spacing in between those QRX complexes. The other thing that's really important is that you won't be able to identify any P waves. Okay, the the baseline, you just won't see any P waves at baseline. Because, remember, the P wave represents the atria contracting. And in the case of atrial fibrillation, There's a very aberrant signal going on in the atria, and it's very chaotic, so you won't see a P wave. Now, if you're in the hospital, you may see what looks like atrial fibrillation on telemetry, which is the monitor that the patient is attached to, or you may get paged by the nurse that the patient is in atrial fibrillation. What are your next steps? So... One of the most important steps is to ask for the other vitals, or if you're with the patient, to look at their other vitals. Most importantly, you want to know what is their blood pressure, and you want to know what is their heart rate. And then, of course, you can't diagnose any kind of arrhythmia on telemetry. So what you need to do is you need to get an EKG to confirm the arrhythmia, always, okay? So if you think that a patient is an AFib based on their telemetry, Look at their other vitals, mainly their blood pressure and heart rate, and get an EKG to confirm that they truly are in atrial fibrillation. So let's say you have a patient. It looked like AFib on telly. You just confirmed with the EKG. 
So how do we manage the atrial fibrillation? Now, what did I just say you need to look at in addition to the EKG? The vitals. A lot of how we manage patients in atrial fibrillation depends on the state of that patient. Are they stable or are they unstable? Now, what do I mean by that? What determines if a patient is stable or unstable? Their blood pressure. So if a patient's blood pressure is low, let's say less than 90 over 60, or they're not maintaining their mean arterial pressure or MAP above 65, I would consider that pretty unstable. So how do we manage unstable atrial fibrillation? For unstable atrial fibrillation, the treatment is to shock them. And this is true for almost all arrhythmias. If they are unstable and they're not maintaining a healthy blood pressure, we need to shock them. Now, there are two types of shocks. Do you guys know what they are and what the difference is between them? So what I'm thinking of here is synchronized cardioversion versus defibrillation. These are the two kinds of different shocks. Synchronized cardioversion is going to give the shock in synchrony with the QRS complex. The key is that we are not delivering the shock at the same time as the T wave. And do you guys know why? That's because shocking during the T wave can actually lead to V-fib or ventricular fibrillation, which is a fatal arrhythmia. And so we really do not want to do that. And so if a patient is in AFib, we want to give them synchronized cardioversion so that the shock is delivered in synchrony with the QRS complex and we don't send them into V-fib. Besides atrial fibrillation, other indications for synchronized cardioversion are atrial flutter, supraventricular tachyarrhythmia, which is SVT, or ventricular tachycardia if the patient has a pulse. Okay, so these are the times that you want to use synchronized cardioversion. Basically, if the patient has a pulse, we want to give them synchronized cardioversion so we don't send them into V-fib. The other kind of shock is defibrillation. This shock will be delivered anytime, not in synchrony. And do you guys know when that would be? So this is if the patient doesn't have a pulse. So ventricular fibrillation and then VTAC if the patient lacks a pulse. So for atrial fibrillation, like we said, the treatment is synchronized cardioversion. That's really, really important. And that is considered electrical cardioversion. There is also chemical cardioversion with drugs such as amiodarone, which you will learn. Um, but again, amiodarone can also drop the patient's blood pressure. So usually if you're going to initiate this in practice, you'll talk with cardiology or electrophysiology. For the purposes of the boards, I want you to remember that if a patient is unstable, i.e. they have a low blood pressure, and they're in atrial fibrillation, no matter what the heart rate is, you need to cardiovert. And what kind of cardioversion did I say you need to do? Synchronized cardioversion, because you do not want to send them into V-fib. Very good. Now, what if the patient is hemodynamically stable? They have a solid blood pressure. Then what do we do? So our first step in AFib is then rate control. Do you guys know what the target heart rate is for a patient who's in AFib? 
less than 110 beats per minute. Remember, we think of 60 to 100 beats per minute as normal heart rate. With AFib, we're a little more lenient and we'll accept up to 110. So if the patient's heart rate is less than 110, we can leave it alone. But what if it's higher? So this is why we want to make sure that the patient is hemodynamically stable. Because there are medications that we can give to lower their heart rate, but they also have an effect on the blood pressure. Do you guys know what these medications are? So one of the classes is beta blockers, such as metoprolol, and you can give metoprolol IV or oral, and then calcium channel blockers, such as diltiazem. And diltiazem, you can actually start a drip and kind of titrate it to the heart rate. So beta blockers and calcium channel blockers are the mainstay of drugs for rate control in atrial fibrillation. But again, it's really important to make sure that the patient's blood pressure can tolerate administering these medications. There's other drugs that you can use as well, and these are considered more rhythm control. Examples would be amiodarone and digoxin, but again, remember that these can also lower the patient's blood pressure. So once you have established rate control for a patient in AFib, the second question that we have to ask ourselves is how long has the patient been in atrial fibrillation? Any idea why this could be important? So if the patient has been in atrial fibrillation for less than 48 hours, it's unlikely that they formed a clot. So the reason this is important is because, you know, if you shock a patient in atrial fibrillation and they do have a clot in their heart, there's always a risk of dislodging that clot and sending it up to the brain and creating a stroke. So if a patient is unstable, we weigh risk versus benefits. If they're unstable, their blood pressure is dropping, uh, you can either let it drop and they'll die, or you can shock them, risk a stroke, but you also have the chance of saving their life. So it's risk versus benefit. If it's been less than 48 hours, they're very unlikely to have formed a clot. And so if this is their first ever case of atrial fibrillation, it's been less than 48 hours, you can probably... Um, cardiovert them still. Now, in this case, their blood pressure is stable and you've achieved rate control, so it's not going to be an emergency, um, but you can probably consult electrophysiology and they will perform a cardioversion. If this works, great. The other option is that the patient has been in atrial fibrillation for over 48 hours, or you don't know how long they've been in atrial fibrillation. So in this case, before you shock, you really do need to rule out a clot. So one of the ways to do that is to perform a TEE or a transesophageal echocardiogram. This is done under anesthesia, but it can allow you to really visualize the heart and make sure that there is no clot before you do a cardioversion. Or you can anticoagulate the patient for a period of time, they say at least three weeks, and then you can perform cardioversion. And then the patient will still need to be on anticoagulation for a couple of weeks, up to four weeks after that, um, in order to be considered safe. Now, not all patients, unfortunately, who are cardioverted will return to normal sinus rhythm. Um, sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. 
Sometimes patient will temporarily return to normal sinus rhythm and then they'll go right back into AFib. So these patients are considered to have chronic atrial fibrillation. Now, how do we treat chronic atrial fibrillation? So medications, um, remember we said, what drugs did we say we can use for rate control? Beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. And what's our goal heart rate with AFib? Less than 110 beats per minute. And then remember, we also talked about rhythm control. So amiodarone, digoxin. Which do we prefer for managing AFib? Do we prefer rate control or do we prefer rhythm control? The answer is rate control. Any idea why? So this is actually based on a phase three randomized study, which was done in 2002. Um, it's called the AFFIRM trial where they randomized about 4,000 patients to get either rate control or rhythm control for atrial fibrillation. And they actually found that rate control was non-inferior to rhythm control in terms of overall survival. And rate control actually was associated with fewer hospitalizations and fewer adverse effects compared to rhythm control. So that's the AFFIRM trial. It was published way back in 2002. But that's really our mainstay of evidence for why rate control is better than rhythm control. So in addition to rate control, what medication should patients in AFib be on? So typically patients with AFib are on some form of chronic anticoagulation. And what drugs do we use for anticoagulation? What are, the some, what are some of the ones that you can think of? So if you're thinking heparin, this is only given in the IV form, and so it's only used while inpatient. Outpatient, they could either be bridged to warfarin, um, and what's the target INR for AFib if you're on warfarin? That's two to three. And then if you don't want to, you know, regularly monitor your INR, there's other choices that we can use as well, and these are the novel oral anticoagulants, such as apixaban, also known as Eliquis or rivaroxaban, also known as Xarelto. Eliquis and Xarelto are the brand names. Now, I want to ask you here, do all patients with chronic atrial fibrillation require anticoagulation? So the answer is no. But how do we determine if a patient in AFib needs to be on anticoagulation? So this is based on their risk of developing a stroke. And the score that we use is called the CHADS-VASC score. This is a system, a scoring system that you can look up. If you have the MD-CALC app, it's very useful. It has a lot of these scoring systems in there. But I'll walk you through the mnemonic right now, the CHADS-VASC mnemonic, um, and kind of tell you what risk factors we're looking for for getting a stroke. So each letter in CHADS-VASC stands for something, and a yes to any of these things kind of gives you a point. So C is for CHF, H is for hypertension, A is for age, so you get one point if you're 65 to 74, and you get two points if you are greater than or equal to 75 years old. So we have CHF, hypertension, age, the D is for diabetes, the S is for having a history of a stroke, TIA, or thromboembolism, the V is for having any kind of vascular disease, such as a prior MI or peripheral arterial disease. The A 
The second A is also for age because remember you get one point if you're 65 to 74 and you get two points if you're over 75. And then finally the SC at the end, C is lowercase, it's sex category. So you only get a point if you're female. So remember that female gets a point, they're considered higher risk. So after you calculate the score, the way you interpret is a score of zero is considered low risk and they may not require anticoagulation at all. A score of one is considered low to moderate risk and you can consider antiplatelet or anticoagulation. If you do an antiplatelet, it could be something like aspirin. And then a score of two or more is considered moderate to high risk and these patients really should be on anticoagulation unless it is contraindicated. So that was quite a long review, um, but remember AFib is a super important topic. I just finished my intern year in medicine and I think AFib is something that I dealt with almost daily on the floors and in the ICU. I want to go through a quick summary of the management to just kind of reiterate everything that we talked about. So let's say you're an intern, you're on overnight, and you get paged that a patient is in AFib on telemetry. What is your next step? You're talking on the phone with the nurse and she says, hey, this patient is in AFib on tele. So your first question to the nurse should be, what are the patient's vitals? You need to know their heart rate. You need to know their blood pressure. You need to know if they're stable or unstable. And what are you going to ask the nurse to do? Get an EKG. So this goes without saying, but you obviously should go to the patient. But if I get a call like that, I'm going to ask, what are the patient's vitals right now? And I'm going to say, get an EKG. I'm on my way. If you're an intern, you should also probably grab your senior. So you get to the patient's bedside and you've confirmed that the patient is truly an AFib. You see irregularly irregular rhythm on the EKG and you do not identify any P waves. So let's say the patient's heart rate is 150 and their blood pressure is 70 over 30. What do you do? With that blood pressure, I just described a super unstable patient whose blood pressure is very dangerously low. So the board answer is you perform synchronized cardioversion. Now, let's say their patient's heart rate is 150 and their blood pressure is 120 over 80. What do you do? So this is definitely a more robust blood pressure and you have some room to work with. So the next step is to establish rate control. So you could try giving them IV metoprolol. You can push 5 milligrams IV metoprolol, try and control the rate. If that works, excellent. If it doesn't, you can either try giving them more metoprolol. You can try giving them IV diltiazem. Remember I said you can do a diltiazem drip and titrate to a goal rate of less than 110. If at any point while you're giving these medications and the patient's blood pressure drops and they become unstable, remember that cardioversion is still in your back pocket if they become unstable. So let's say you gave them the 5 milligram IV metoprolol push and their rate improved and it became 90 beats per minute. Their blood pressure is still good. The next step is to think about whether or not you need cardioversion, whether or not you need anticoagulation. So if this is an inpatient, you probably have their history. Let's say you know that this patient has no prior episodes of AFib. 
And you know that this happened acutely because they were on the monitor the whole time they were in the hospital and this just happened. So in this case, you can probably consult electrophysiology in the morning and they'll decide if cardioversion is appropriate. Now, let's say the patient is older, they have too many other comorbidities and too many risk factors to perform cardioversion. Then what do we need to do? So you need to calculate their CHADS-VASC score, and you need to determine if they need to be on long-term anticoagulation. So let's say this patient has a history of diabetes, they had an MI, and they've already had two stents placed, uh, and the patient is 75 years old. Do they need to be on anticoagulation? Yes. I just gave you, you know, four points worth of risk factors. So that age of 75 gets you two points, the history of the MI and the history of the diabetes. And I don't think I specified the gender, but let's just say it's male. That would be zero points. But given all these risk factors, they should be on anticoagulation as long as there is no contraindication. So for this patient, you could probably start them on IV heparin while they're in the hospital. Um, and you'll start off by giving a heparin bolus, and then the nurses will monitor the patient's PTT, and they'll titrate the heparin drip to the PTT to make sure that it's at goal. Um, and then when they're discharged from the hospital, they'll need to be transitioned to some other kind of long-term anticoagulation. So if they're going to be on warfarin, then they need to be bridged to warfarin, which means they're on heparin and warfarin at the same time until their INR is therapeutic, so between two and three. Or you can start them on one of those NOACs that we had discussed, like a Pixaban or Rivaroxaban. So that is the basic algorithm for the management of atrial fibrillation. I want you to remember that if you ever see any arrhythmia on telemetry, there are two key steps. First of all, you need to get the patient's vitals and you need to decide if they're stable or unstable. And second of all, you have to confirm the arrhythmia on EKG. Atrial fibrillation, or any kind of arrhythmia really, can be very, very scary to deal with as a first-time intern on the floors. So you need to go in with the knowledge of how to handle these. Over time, you'll get the practice, and with that, you'll slowly develop the confidence to handle arrhythmias um, calmly and carefully. That's all I have for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Um, this was our very first clinical concepts episode, so I would really appreciate some feedback. Uh, do you guys think that the material is, you know, applicable enough for step two? Is it relevant for clinical rotations? Uh, do you guys think that there's anything we can improve on? Please do let us know. If there are any clinical concepts topics that you would like to see covered, you can always let us know. Um, remember, all feedback can be directed to our website at spoonfulofsugar.org. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can click on the link for this episode and post them there. Um, as always, I want to wish you guys the best of luck with your studies, your rotations, and so on. I know that things can get really stressful in medical school, but remember that SOS does not just have to stand for a cry for help. It can also stand for a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. 